Y'all turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we're going to be lo- looking at that. We're also going to be looking at a passage in 1 Chronicles 28. The references are on the back of your At First Guide, so take a look at that if you need to. Uh, but stop me if you've heard this before. Millennials are the most spoiled, entitled generation in American history. They've been raised by a bunch of helicopter parents who did everything for them and got them out of trouble. They got participation ribbons and trophies just for being part of it. They, they've, they're just a bunch of... Uh, avocado toast munching, uh, smartphone addicted, uh, brick and mortar store killing, America hating, uh, vegan eating people that our country's going to go down the tubes once they're in charge. You ever heard this? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody ever? No, I'm not going to ask you if you said that, but we know it's fun sport to make fun of millennials. And what are, what are we going to do to Generation Z? They're just now emerging. But I want you to know it didn't start with millennials. I'm a member of Generation X. We got a few of us Xers in the room, right? Well, they forget all about us now. I mean, they, they, all their scorn is turned toward the millennials. But when we were teenagers and, and young adults, Generation X, we were considered the most cynical, uh, slacker generation ever. We care about nothing except ourselves. The country is in big trouble when we grow up. And then look at the generation of our parents. We're kids of the baby boomers. There's a few baby boomers in this room, too. Yes, absolutely. Shout out to baby boomers. Now, think about it. If you're a baby boomer, your parents won World War II. They lived through the Depression. They were the greatest generation. So growing up, you had all that to live up to, and you got, you got scorn heaped on you because your generation brought us free love and rock and roll and long hair and draft dodging and all these terrible things that just wrecked our country and dr- drove us down the road to perdition. But it didn't even start there. I've got some great quotes for you. You ready for this? So first of all, 1790, this one is from 1790, the free access which many young people have to romances, novels, and plays has poisoned the mind and corrupted the morals of many a promising youth. You got to watch out for those novels and plays, man. They will get you every time. Okay, so 1771, going back another generation. Whither are the manly vigor and athletic appearance of our forefathers flown? Can these be their legitimate heirs? Surely no, a race of effeminate, self-admiring, emaciated fribbles can never have descended in a direct line from the heroes of Poitiers and Agincourt. And I double-dog dare you to call somebody an emaciated fribble today. I just, I just want to see what happens. So here's one from way further back, 1634. This is the original spelling, so don't send me any emails. This is the way they wrote back then. Youth were never more saucy, yea, never more savagely saucy. The ancient are scorned, the honorable are condemned, the magistrate is not dreaded. So right here in the first two rows, we have our savagely saucy youth. So uh, just so you know. All right, so uh, even further back, this this is my favorite. So Four centuries before Jesus, Aristotle himself supposedly said, young people think they know everything and are quite sure about it. I think that was right before he said, get off my lawn. So today we finish our study of the life of David. And we've seen a man who was real, a man who was uh, frail at times, a man who certainly failed at times, but whose, whose saving grace was that God loved him, and God loved him more than his sin, and he realized that, and he was totally devoted to a God who would love him that way. 
And so we've learned from this man. We've learned a lot of different things. Today we're going to look at David in his later years. You know, David died, he was only 70. These days, that's pretty young. It gets younger every year, in fact. But David lived a hard life. He, he fought a lot of battles. He was, he was getting elderly before his time. And you and I, if we've read the story of David together, we've seen David wasn't the best father. He made a lot of mistakes as a dad. But in his later years, as he looked ahead and saw, one of my sons is going to claim the throne, he thought to himself, I'd better, I'd better reach out to that son, to Solomon, and make sure he's ready. So you think about it, and the Bible doesn't say this, but you can imagine David, greatest king in Israel's history, took them from being just a, a, a dispersed band, of a disparate band of, of tribes, to becoming a united nation that was the, the, feared, the most feared nation in the whole Middle East. And people were saying to themselves, have you heard that Solomon's going to be next after David's dead? Can you imagine what Solomon's going to be like as king? Have you seen the kind of girls he hangs out with? Have you seen how fast he drives that chariot? I mean, we're we're in trouble. The the kingdom is going to hell in a handbasket when Solomon becomes king. And David, I want you to see, in his later years, chose not to waste time condemning and judging and griping about the next generation. Instead, he invested in in the next generation. We're going to look at three lessons, three values David intentionally incarnated into his son. And I want to ask you before we look at the scriptures, what are you doing right now to invest in the next generation? Now there are people in this room, several people in this room who are parents, several who are grandparents. I want you to know, as a dad myself, our number one job the thing we should focus on above all else is passing our faith along. And it's great if you teach your kid to throw a wicked curveball. It's great if you get your kid into a good school, if they learn how to play violin, if they learn another language, if they get married to somebody you like. All that's wonderful if they someday put you in a good nursing home, hallelujah. But hey, if you haven't focused on doing your best, to create in your home an environment in which they are more likely to choose the path that God has laid out for them, then you've been wasting your time as a parent because nothing matters more. You can't choose Christ for your child, but you can, you can make that your focus. You can make that your number one prayer. You can do everything you can to lead them in that direction. And for the rest of us, those of us who aren't parents in this room or, or maybe our parenting days are behind us, I want you to understand every one of us has a part to play in passing the faith along. The Bible is very clear about this. If you're not passing your faith along, you're not living a fully developed Christian life. So that means if you're a boss, if you have the privilege of leading employees, don't treat them as cogs in the machine. Don't treat them as means to an end. But instead, there are young men and women that God has entrusted to your care. And yeah, sometimes you got to be tough with them, but you also need to make sure you are showing them what it means to be a Christian man or woman. You're showing them there is something different about you because of your faith. That means no matter who you are, you take opportunities to establish relationships with people who are younger than you. And don't say to yourself, well, I don't have anything in common with them. They won't want to hear anything from me. Understand that every time you interact socially with somebody younger than you, you have an opportunity to invest in them in a way that you wish someone would have at their age. 
And no, that doesn't mean passing along all your wisdom all at once, but it does mean God has blessed you with certain life experiences. God has blessed you with certain resources. God has blessed you with certain blessings that you can share. And that's powerful stuff. You're doing God's work when you do that. And what are the things we want to pass along? I want you to see the three values David passed along to Solomon at the end of his life. So let's look at number one, obedience. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And that last verse is a reference to a covenant that God made with David in David's younger years. If you were part of our series, you heard this. David came to God and said, I want to build a temple for the ark of the Lord to rest in, for the people of God to worship in. And God said, that's so great that you want to build me a house, but I'm actually not going to let you do that. That's going to be Solomon's job. But since you want to build me a house, I'll tell you what, I'll build you a house. Not a physical, literal house, but I will make your throne last forever. And what he was ultimately talking about was Jesus. Because Jesus would come from the direct descent of David. He would be a direct descendant of David himself, and he would be the king that will reign forever, which is really good news for you and me. But in a more short-term sense, what David is directly referring to in verse 4 is, yeah, God said that as long as my sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons, as long as they follow him, then they'll stay on the throne forever, and I will never lack a man on the throne. That part of the covenant was conditional. See, David couldn't possibly mess up the Jesus part, but David's sons and grandsons and his descendants could mess up the other part. He was saying, Solomon, buddy, God has a plan to bless you and your children and your grandchildren, and all you have to do is obey Him. But if you don't obey Him, if you choose to go your own way, He will reject you. And you might say, well, that's kind of cruel. I thought God's love was unconditional, and it is. But let me tell you, God's love does not mean He always gives us everything we want. Let me explain what I mean by this. If you're a, if you're a dad and you have a teenage daughter who falls in love with an older guy who has a history of domestic violence and is actively involved in criminal activity, and she comes to you and says, Dad, we're moving in together. Can you help us with the cost of our apartment? Do you say yes? Absolutely not. Because you love her. Not because you hate her. If you're a mom and your son, your teenage son comes to you and says, hey mom, I, I'm looking to get into the heroin dealing business and I want some money to front uh, this business so that I can have enough to buy my inventory, do you say yes? Of course not. Because as parents, love means you don't subsidize self-destruction. If they're going to do that kind of stuff, you're still going to love them, but you're not going to endorse it. You're not going to bless them. You're going to say, you can do that, but over my dead body. And see, God loves us that much. And so when we disobey Him, we experience the fruits of our disobedience. See, here's, here's something people don't understand, including people who go to church all the time. There's this idea that the way life works in God's kingdom is God sets up these elaborate tests in the form of commands. 
And life goes according to how well we are, how well we follow those laws. So God loves us more if we follow the rules a little better, and God loves us less if we follow the rules not so well. And that's not the way it works. Actually, the way it works is God has written commands in Scripture not to test us, not to grade us, but because He knows how the world works, because He created the world. And He's saying, if you want to live a life free from from the unnecessary pain that you bring upon yourself, if you want to have a family full of love, if you want to avoid making the the terrible mistakes that, that crush so many others, then follow these ways. Walk in wisdom. And so when we talk about being blessed by God, usually the blessing we're talking about is just the natural freedom and joy that comes from doing the right thing. And usually when we talk about God punishing us, it's not like He's zapping us with lightning from heaven or striking us with leprosy. It's just that we've made terrible choices and He says, fine, if you want to go that way, if you want to live with your drug-dealing, wife-beating boyfriend, go ahead. I'm still going to love you, but you're going to experience the fruits of your bad decisions. So when we impress upon the younger generation how important obedience is, we're not trying to destroy their fun. We're not trying to impose our morality upon them. We're trying to say there is a right way to live, and if you'll just live this way, you'll experience freedom and joy and peace and hope. We're acting out of love. And if I can just speak directly to parents right now, this is is your job. Now, I hope you're praying for our church. I hope you pray for our children's ministry. And Kathy and all our volunteers there do a fantastic job. I hope you're praying for our student ministry. We're beginning a search for a new student minister. We've got some wonderful volunteers that, that already serve in our student ministry. I hope you pray for them and you're praying for our search. But ultimately, if you're a mom or a dad, your kids learn from you. You are the pastor that is going to have the most powerful impact on the spiritual life of your kids. So that means you need to know the Word of God. If you're not reading along with us on our Through the Bible in a Year reading plan, hope you have another plan you're using because you have to get the Word into your heart because every day there are moments where you will have an opportunity to speak truth to your kids. Teachable moments. There are times they'll have questions And they need to know that you know at least some of the answers, or at least know where to go to get those answers. And by the way, it's not enough just to know the answers. You better live it because kids are fantastic hypocrisy detectors. And they will sniff out phoniness in you from a mile away. So if you're like, I'm in church on Sunday in my best clothes, and I'm acting all holy and dignified, but on Monday you're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off and you say something you shouldn't say, they're going to know. And your spouse makes you mad and you act in a certain way, they're going to see. And somebody hurts you and you refuse to forgive them and you hold a grudge and you hate their guts, they're going to know. Oh, I see the, the Word of God only matters so much to you. In fact, one of the great things about this is you don't have to be perfect as long as you're up front about your imperfection and say, you know, here's something I did wrong, and here's the cost of that, and I don't want you to experience that. Here's a mistake I made just the other day. In fact, here's something I said to you that I regret, and I want to apologize to you. Teaching obedience to the commands of God, that's how we parent as Christian parents. But secondly... Devotion. We teach 
obedience, but also devotion. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. So David sits down with Solomon on a second occasion and says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. That phrase, if you seek him, he will be found by you. That's an amazing promise because nothing else in the world works that way. If you want to be in the NFL Good luck. Do you know that only 9.09% of high school football players ever play professional football? That's 9 out of 10,000. Odds are even worse if you want to play professional basketball. 0.03%. That means 3 out of every 10,000. And if you want to be a major league baseball player, well, you've got a better chance of getting struck by lightning because it's 0.015% of high school baseball players. That's 15 out of 100,000. That's how many even drink a cup of coffee in the major leagues. Because in life, it's not enough to want it. You've got to have talent. You've got to have smarts. You've got to have, you've got to get the right breaks. You've got to know the right people. It's sort of like, uh, you know, being a a star singer, a a rock star. You can't just want it. You've got to have certain connections. You've got to have the right talent. Sort of like being a billionaire entrepreneur or a movie star. It's sort of like asking a girl out. Desire is not enough. In fact, too much desire can be a really bad thing. But only in this one area, the most important area of all, becoming the person you were created to be, knowing the God who made you, experiencing His love, His abundance, His joy, all it takes is desire. If you're devoted to that above all things, you will succeed. It is guaranteed. Nothing can stop you from becoming the person God created you to be and experiencing His love and His joy, His abundance, His peace, His purpose. As long as that is your number one thing. How do we incarnate that in the next generation, though? How do we pass devotion along? A couple of years ago, we as a staff, as a ministry staff, we read a book called Growing Young by uh, Kara Powell, Jake Mulder, and Brad Griffin. And this book is about how a church can be what every church wants to be, which is a church that effectively reaches young adults and teenagers. A church where young people, young families love to attend, where they meet Jesus, where their lives get changed. You know what they found? Every church seems to think all we got to do is is get some hip young pastor and get get fog machines and and laser lights and the pastor's got to grow his goatee out and get a tattoo and, and have holes in his jeans and then the young people will come flooding in. And that's just not true. I mean, churches do church all kinds of ways, and there's all kinds of creative ways to do things, and there's, you know, that can be good or bad, but what really makes a difference are these five things. Are you ready for this? The churches that effectively reach young adults and teenagers have these in common. First of all, they gave young adults opportunities to serve God using their spiritual gifts and passions. That does not mean they hand them a sheet when they first join that says, if you're interested in volunteering, you can join the choir or go to the nursery. It means they actually listen and say, oh, these are your passions. This is what you care about. This is, this is what God gifted you to do. Well, let's find a way for you to use that in his kingdom. Secondly, they listen to young adults instead of judging them. Instead of saying, oh, you stupid millennials, they said, let's hear what makes you tick, what's important to you, how can we minister to you. Number three, they preach the real gospel of Jesus, not politics 
or health and wealth. And man, that encouraged me so much when I read that chapter of the book because that's what I want our church to be. And I think you do too. I want you to know every time you come to this place, when you go to life group, when you sit in this sanctuary, you're going to hear the real gospel. You're not going to hear opinions. You're not going to hear pop culture. You're not going to hear politics. You're not going to hear how to become wealthy and successful. You're going to hear who God is and how to know Him better. And that's what younger generations are seeking. And that's exciting to me. Number four, they had true, warm community. People aren't looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends, for people who will actually break away from their little group and say, hey, let's, you and me, let's go to dinner. Let's, let's have you come to our Bible study. Let's do things together. Number five, they made a positive impact on the community. One of the biggest differences between older generations and younger, in older generations, it's important to be members of stuff. I'm a member of this church. I'm a member of this uh, community organization. That doesn't matter to younger generations. They don't care about that stuff. What they care about is, is my church making a difference? And if it's not, if you can't point to ways the community is in better shape because of this church, then they don't have any interest. But the biggest takeaway of all, there's those five things. The biggest takeaway from the book for me is this. They looked at the phenomenon that, that kids grow up in church and some have the exact same experience. They, they go to a youth camp. They go to mission trip. They get baptized. And some of them grow up and walk away from church and never come back. And others, when they grow up, they're just as devoted to church, if not more so than their parents. They raise their kids there and they become the next generation of leaders. What makes the difference between those two? And according to their studies, the biggest difference between those two groups is the kids who held on to their faith had at least five non-relative adults who were Christians who invested in them. Five adults who were Christians who weren't members of their family, who spent time with them, who knew their names, who prayed for them, who checked up on them, who sent them a birthday card at their birthday with a gift card to GameStop or Academy in there or Dairy Queen, who, who would go to their baseball games and go to their band concerts, who would call up their parents and say, why don't you come over and watch the World Series with me? Or we're grilling burgers, why don't you come and, and join us? These were adults who didn't necessarily teach them Sunday school, although that certainly was the case a lot of the time. Sometimes it was just people who said, I'm taking an interest in you. I'm, I'm paying attention to you. I care about you. And you know what? With all due respect, the captain of the football team and the head cheerleader and the valedictorian and the outgoing kid, they get plenty of adult attention. I want to challenge you, if you don't already invest in the younger generation, I want, you to, I want to challenge you to seek out Kids that others don't notice, that maybe they aren't quite so socially confident, maybe not quite so outspoken, and just pray for them and check in with their parents and say, how can I encourage your son or your daughter? And that's powerful stuff because someday they're going to grow up and they're going to look back and they're going to say, the adults who made my load lighter and made me feel like I mattered, they're all Christians. They all follow Jesus. I want to be that kind of adult. That's how we pass along devotion. I am sure, although the Bible doesn't say this for sure, I am sure that Solomon grew up watching his dad worship God with nothing held back like John talked about last Sunday. Watched his dad repent of his sins. Watched his dad serve 
And that made an impact. That's how we pass along devotion. Number three, we need to pass along courage. First Chronicles 28, 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do what? He's talking about building the temple. He's saying, son, I've got the money for you. I've got the resources laid out. I've even got the plans that God gave me. All you have to do is build a temple, but there's going to be opposition. Anytime anybody tries to do something good, people always step up and criticize. People are probably going to say, why do we need a temple? Why are we spending all this money? Why are we spending all this time? We've had a tabernacle to worship God in, this big tent. That's been good enough for our forefathers. Why go through this? David says, don't let them stop you. Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. So courage. Courage means doing what's right even when it would be easier not to. And I want to show you a little film clip or a little video clip of something that happened in our own hometown. This is about a young man right here in Conroe. This is on the national news. I want you to see this. Horrifying video shows a pit bull pounce on a six-year-old boy and knock him to the ground. Little Mason Lindemann was playing in his driveway with friends when the pit bull escaped from a neighbor's home and attacked, clamping his jaw down on the boy's head. The boy's friends run for help as Mason struggles to break free. Suddenly, a hero comes to the rescue. The teen who heard the boy's screams runs right into the path of danger. Watch as he deliberately diverts the pit bull's attention. Now the dog goes after him, giving the six-year-old kid a chance to run home. The hero neighbor is also attacked when he loses his sneaker and falls to the ground. Here's young Mason today. His mom, Jillian, shows us his injuries. He's got a bruise under here still. And he's got a small scratch there. He also has staples in the back of his head. He was just very scared, really shook up. I could see how terrified he was. Little Mason shows us where he was attacked. I was standing about like right here. And the dog came in running. His mom says she's grateful to her neighbor, who so selflessly sprang into action. To me, he is a hero. And here he is, Grant Brown. He's a 19-year-old college student and just enlisted in the Army National Guard. I'm glad you're okay. Grant suffered bite injuries to his hand while fighting off the pit bull. The dog was right on top of me, so I tried to grab his throat and it bit me. I did manage to get back up. Thank you. But he says he would do it all again. I don't think I'm a hero. I just think that I did the right thing. Pretty awesome. Does anybody know Grant Brown here in this room? I mean, this is still a small town, but wouldn't you love to think we could create a whole generation of young men and women like that? But how do we do that? How do we create, how do we, how do we raise up a generation of people who stand up to evil, who do what's hard? First, we've got to be courageous ourselves. We have to possess courage in our own hearts. And I know that I, on my own, don't have that. I've chickened out too many times to tell. So I pray for courage in me. I hope you do too. Understanding that when you pray for courage, it's not like you wake up the next day feeling like Mighty Mouse. You know, here I come to save the day. I'm not going to do the song. But um, it's more like God puts you in positions where you require courage and you learn. You can trust Him. But also, there, there's what it says in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
That word encourage, in Greek, it's pronounced parakalontes, and it means to come alongside. So we think of encouragement as being like, hey, buddy, you've, uh, you did a good job today, or wow, you really look sharp, and that's fine. But encouragement, real encouragement is, it's like what the Holy Spirit does when you become a Christian. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God comes alongside you and never leaves. To encourage someone means to, to walk alongside them while they observe you and you observe them and, and you're able to together face the trials of life. That's how we teach courage. Are you willing to do that? And who are you willing to do that for? See, one of my favorite movies of all time ends with a soldier dying, the captain of a group of soldiers that's gone behind enemy lines to rescue another soldier. And as he lies dying at the end of the movie, he looks up at the soldier that's been rescued and he says two words. He says, earn this. And it just kills me every time. Um, Because I, I, of course, think about all the men and women who've gone overseas and have fought battles that I need to live up to, right? But then I also think about Jesus, the ultimate hero who laid down his life for me and didn't say, earn this, because I never could. Instead, in the words of the father of the pair of the prodigal son, he said, let's celebrate, because my child who was dead is alive, my, my child who was lost has been found. And I was rejoicing in heaven when I came home. And don't you want to be part of the responsibility of knowing that you helped bring about that kind of joy, that kind of freedom, that kind of celebration. It's so easy to just move on through life and not worry about people coming along behind you. That's not your business, right? Well, it is. It's not just your business. It's, it's your privilege 